Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Alrighty, I welcome you back to your seats. It is that time to open up the living, breathing Word of God and see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Words of life and blessing and truth today in Matthew chapter 8. Let's ask the Lord for His blessing. Now, Father, as we consider the supernatural healings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray For a heart that can understand and discern these truths, Lord, that you would give us the necessary uh, balance and discernment that we need, God, concerning these wonderful miracles, God. We thank you for your authority and your power that is highlighted here in our passage this morning, that we know, God, that whatever's facing us, you have the authority and power over it and against it, and you are for us then who could be against us? So we're thankful, God, that you're here with us. We ask you to guide us through this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, you've all heard about Pandora's box, and it had nothing to do with music back in those days. The Greek mythology there with Pandora was given this box by Zeus, and was told that it possessed all these wonderful gifts, but the caveat was that she could never open it. Well, actually, inside that box was all kind of evil misfortunes, which Zeus intended to unleash on mankind because he was angry with the world about something. And so he hoped that one day, Miss Pandora would grow curious, have a weak moment, and open the box and the terrible evils would be unleashed on the earth. And of course, that day came, and Pandora opened the box for a look-see, and out came deception and murder, infidelity, pain, and suffering. Actually, the story is invented as a way of explaining the origin of evil, and of course, it's where we get the expression, opening Pandora's box, Uh, meaning doing something that uh, unknowingly unleashes all sorts of nasty, unforeseen chaos. Well, according to a more reliable source, the Word of God, (laughs) what actually happened to unleash evil upon the world did involve a woman, a real one, named Eve. You know the story. She was not to do something as well. And what she was supposed to not do was eat of a tree. She had her choice there of many, many trees. But God was testing 
uh, our first parents with a choice to choose to use their will to express their love for God. And so they used it in the wrong way. And she ate, and so did her husband Adam, and sin entered the world. And they opened the proverbial Pandora's box of all things evil. And I'll tell you what, the consequence of the fall, biblically speaking, really makes Pandora's box look more like a treasure chest, really, by comparison, because every evil thing you can think of whether it, it has to do with the earth itself, with earthquakes and natural disasters and tsunamis and storms and war and crime and hate and murder and death and destruction and disease and sickness and pain and divorce. Just keep talking and making the list. You will trace it all back to one moment in the garden when the author of life said, don't disconnect from me. I'm the source of all things good. And to disconnect and disobey the author of life, well, what would you think would happen? Death came and death spread to all men and sin spread like a disease and brought its terrible consequences here. Now, interestingly, in the myth, the Greek nonsense version, uh, we have Pandora opens a box and all this evil is unleashed and she gets freaked out and she closes the lid so fast that the virtue of hope gets stuck inside and not able to be released on the scene. So all you get is the evil. And I was thinking that Satan's version always excludes hope from the story. But in the true uh, account given to us in Genesis 3, hope was not excluded. Right there at the scene of opening the box to all things evil, God promises a conqueror, a virgin-born conqueror who would come to reverse the curse and to redeem the fallen world from all its suffering caused because of sin. And what we have here in Matthew chapter 8 is the God-man conqueror, the fulfillment of that very hopeful prophetic word given to Adam and Eve, that one would come to reverse the curse. And Jesus, the God-man, is now on the scene touching and healing and correcting and comforting and rebuking and giving hope and healing and, and comes preaching the gospel, the good news that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have a way back from death into life. And so that's what's going on here in chapter 8 with these miracles. Jesus is showing his power and authority over and against all the mischief and madness and mayhem that resulted because of sin. And so... Really, you come away with the idea of Jesus' authority and powers that whatever's facing you, whatever it is, Jesus is greater. He has the authority over it and power to help you through it, around it, over it, under it, but to prevail. That's his promise. And so, yeah, it's good news. These miracles are always teaching us something about the gospel. And that's the point. The point is not the miracles. And you'll see that in the text. The point is the gospel and the messenger and the message, right? And the miracles come to as a sign to confirm that Jesus' 
message is true and can be trusted. And so we can take him at his word. So we are now looking at miracle number three. It's the first of the miracles in Matthew chapter eight. And we are at now the close of the chapter with this third miracle picking up at verse 14. And I did the same thing that I've done before. Um, Dr. Luke's version adds uh, a lot of helpful little insights. And so I compiled it in yellow, Luke's comments, where he differs or adds uh, to Matthew's account. And so at verse 14 of chapter 8, your text reads, when Jesus left the synagogue, so we know it's a Saturday, he came into Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed, suffering with a very high fever. You'll notice the very high is from the doctor. Of course, it makes sense, (laughs) right? They asked Jesus to help her. Jesus bends over her, touches her, rebukes the fever. Wow. And it leaves her. And she gets up at once and begins to wait on him. So when evening comes, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word. Demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not let them speak because they knew who he was. He was the Christ. And he healed all the sick, laying his hands on each one. What a tender, moving, touching scene there. Verse 17, this was to fulfill, this happened because it was prophesied through Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, which you read this morning, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now I've added, Luke picks up with something very helpful for perspective on miracles and because you could leave this chapter just all consumed with miracles, miracles, miracles. But here's what goes on. In the morning, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Mark adds to pray. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Do you blame them? (laughs) But he said, here's my priority. Here's why I came. I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching and teaching the good news in the synagogues there in Judea, that region. And so there you have some really helpful words there for us to consider. So let's get situated here and then we'll walk through as we always do. I don't think Satan showed Eve and Adam, all of the mayhem and the pain and suffering that would occur uh, as he seduced her and them into sinning. All he does is just say, hey, doesn't it look good to gain knowledge? And, And it looked beautiful, of course, right? He just points out the glitz and the glamour, and he leaves out the entire terrible chaos, the painful suffering that it would bring to the world. And that, what you, we have here uh, in, the, in the passage before us is only probably 1% of all the suffering of this world through the ages because of sin coming into this world. Sin opened the door 
to all things terrible, and Christ came to close it forever. And that's really the point of these miracles and the passage this morning. So we see the Son of God at work here doing his good deeds on the scene of human suffering, just the train wreck of human wreckage there, you know, with demon possession and people quaking and delirious under a fever that surely would have killed her had the Lord not intervened. And so, yes, this is what we see here. Jesus is touching, redeeming, and he's going to carry our iniquities and our infirmities to the cross, pay for sin that causes those things once and for all, that we could be made whole in a saving uh, sort of way. And so, What are these miracles saying about Jesus? He's got the power and the authority to fix the mess. Any mess. Name the mess. Jesus has authority over it and power to remedy the situation. What's he saying to us? Put your trust in me. I'll fix it. I can fix this. You have a friend in high places, and his name is the Lord. And that's one of the meanings of advocate, is someone who can uh, go to bat for you. Somebody with the means and the resources and the power and the influence to make a difference, to stand up by your side. That's the other meaning of the word, is to stand by one's side. And that's who the Lord is. He came to rescue us. And we just see him saying, I know anyone can make that claim, but look what I can do as well. And then he tells the Jews, if I can do what only God can do, then you better put your trust in me. But if I can't, then no worries. Then I'm just a crazy man. But if you see me calling forth a dead corpse to life and it comes out of the grave, then you better start rethinking your position about who I am. Right? So we're going to put the verses here, isolate that first part, distressed by a disease. If you're taking notes, there it is. There, I will paraphrase it for you as you follow along. So after worship service, we would say after church. After church, they head to Peter's house where his wife's mom is suffering from a terrible uh, sickness. Fever is sky high. Uh, They bring her need to Jesus' attention, which is important. Verse 15, Jesus reaches down touches her hand, and commands the fever. He talks to the fever. First person, I command you to leave. And it's gone. And at once she springs out of bed and at once starts to wait on him, to serve him. Mark adds, and everybody else in the house, but starts with Jesus first. And that just touched so right there. I mean, that's a sermon in itself there. So, yeah, down for the count, his mother-in-law is. And just a couple things to notice before we get into the meat of it is, uh, first of all, Peter's married. And the Catholic Church teaches that he is the greatest pope the Catholic Church had ever known, yet they require all who follow him to be celibate. And so he, Peter, and in 1 Corinthians uh, It just says flat out in in chapter 9 and verse 15 that Peter was married. And so Peter's wife's mom is the one 
who is bedridden, stricken with a very high fever. Most scholars say that it was probably malaria. It happened a lot there because they lived by the sea. I've got a picture of a very familiar site that everyone goes to. If you go to Israel, you go to the archaeological site where they have the synagogue and where they believe that Peter's house was. They have all kinds of archaeological evidence for, for both claims there. And so they enjoyed the worship service here. And of course, Jesus doesn't go to church without a lot of <laughs> dramatic things happening. So Mark tells us that on that Saturday, because that was their Sunday, uh, a demon was cast out in the front of everybody. And so there was a lot of chaos and commotion and one happy fella that uh, was no longer under the control of the evil one. And so they make time to go home. Now you see by the water there, Jesus, well, when, when you go to Israel, you take a boat from across the lake from near the hotel and you come up on the boat and you dock here where the Mount of Beatitudes is looking at you there where Jesus gave the Beatitudes. When you're on the boat right about here, he says, put your hands out like this. And everyone does that. And he says, what you're looking at from 10 to 2 is where Jesus did 80% of his teaching and his ministry because it's Capernaum, right? And so what you're looking at is the north side of a lake that's shaped like a harp. And so at the north, the top of that harp, Okay, which is what Chenoweth means, where another name for the lake, because it's the shape of a harp. And so uh, there's where Jesus made home base. That's where he lived and, and ministered and did 80% of his healing. And so, yeah, a lot of mosquitoes like water. And so did you know a million people even today die of malaria? It starts with that fever and it spreads that then 300 million people suffer from it. That's a lot of people. And so thank you, Spence, for that. And we go back to the text there. So we're situated here. Just a few things to point out. You know, I've already talked about uh, the placement of the miracles. You know, this is number three, right? So one, two, and three, the leper, the Gentile, the woman. Three people that modern day Jewish society and the Romans would think, well, boy, if you're going to come and make a priority, you wouldn't go to one, the outcast, two, the outsider, three, the insignificant. And sadly, in Jewish uh, customs, it was thought that a woman was of less value and more insignificant, especially if she lived out in the sticks, rural uh, Galilee. And so uh, that woman might not have mattered much to the Pharisees and Sadducees there in Jerusalem, but she matters to God. And that is one of the most important uh, themes of placing these miracles with these kinds of down and out people that society closes the door on, Jesus says, the ones you shun are the ones I'm willing to receive. The ones you hate are the ones I'm willing to love. And this is why we got to be more like our master and less like the world. And it's hard. It's hard when people do offensive things that are evil and wrong and hurt people. It just makes us want to just shun them. God says, you know, yeah. it's what we always say. Hate the sin. 
love the sinner. That's really hard to do, but it's necessary if we're going to be like Christ. And so back to our woman out in the sticks here. Uh, you just notice the eyewitness thing here. I mean, he bends over. This is an eyewitness. Saw Jesus bending over, touching her hand like that. It's just a special touch. And of course, by touching her uh, hand that she was sick, the Jew, that was against Jewish law. Uh, it's called the halakha. The halakha was a running, a rule book for all things Jewish. And so it's called the Talmud, right? And so they valued their writings over the scriptures. And so God never said you can't touch somebody, minister to somebody who's sick, right? But they said, if you touch that woman, you become defiled. And of course, we find out that the healer's touch doesn't, uh, he doesn't become defiled, but by his touch, the defiled becomes healed, right? And everybody in this room, everybody in this room has been touched by him and had our defilement taken away. There's a beautiful song in the 80s. We used to sing a little chorus. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know, right? <laughs> he touched me and made me whole, right? That's what happens. Jesus came to touch, take on our defilement. It doesn't defile him. He's the son of God, but he was going to carry it in a human sense to the cross and pay for it. Paid in full. He cried out on that cross. And so highlighting here, of course, a couple things worth noting before we move on, uh, that Jesus rebukes the fever. Now, come on. <laughs> Who talks to a disease and says, hey, disease, I'm talking to you. Enough time spent here. Bye-bye. See you later. Take a hike. That's incredible. And Jesus is always being highlighted for his authority and his power. He can speak to the wind and the waves. Can you imagine talking to the wind and saying, you know what? You're really bugging me. Stop it. And the wind goes, wow, come on. And that's why the disciples said, who is this guy <laughs> that he can talk to the water and the water obey him and talk to the wind and the wind silences. He can talk to demons as we'll see and they obey. He calls the stars out. It says in the Psalms and they obey. He tells the ocean tides. You can come this far and go no further and they obey. The only ones who have a problem obeying are the ones made in his image. Us, that's just crazy. And so the crowds are astonished constantly that somebody could say to the disease that he wants it to leave. To the word for rebuke that Dr. Luke uses is to verbally slap or to chastise or to correct or to command. He's really saying, done with you, go. And it goes. And so I've already um, referred to this, that in my own life, what carries me through so many trials and tribulations for 40 years, the thought 
of Jesus' authority and power that whatever it is that's facing me, and thanks face pastors too, whatever it is, I've always known Jesus has authority over this, and I am not at the mercy of a person, place, or thing. No situation ever has a claim on any of us that Jesus is the one calling the shots. And if it's allowed in my life, God is using it and giving me the grace to walk through it. And in the end, I will be glad for it in its good purposes. Uh, I may have to wait to heaven to, to see and understand it fully, but we know by faith, you know, when, of course, he can speak to a fever or disease and say, malaria be gone, you know, when Sarah was told, hey, I know you can't have babies, you never could, and I know you're 90 years old now, but guess what, you're going to have a son, (laughs) right, and she laughs, and the Lord says, why why are you laughing? (laughs) I am the Lord, is anything too hard for me? Is it too hard for me if I spoke and made a world and then look at the universe? That's because I spoke. So if I can do that, isn't everything else kind of easy? Right? It's really not hard for God. Now, for us to even make a grain of sand, that would be uh, pretty difficult. But God can do all of these things. And so, yes, it's very comforting. The second beautiful insight here that I want you to see is is that once she experiences his touch, she immediately, and that's in there for a reason, she at once, she immediately, she springs up, and the first thing she does is get busy serving him. And here's my go-to theologian um, pastor, (laughs) Charles Spurgeon. You know, I quote him like every Sunday, don't I? Uh, So Charles says this about this woman, with gratitude beaming from her face and joy overflowing from her heart, she places each dish upon the table. It's lunchtime, after all. And she brings forth water with which her guests might wash their feet. The moment the Lord Jesus Christ saves a soul, he gives that soul strength and cause for its appointed service, right? So you're touched by, the, by God's only begotten son. The fever of sin is subdued. The chains that bind you are loosed. The mind tormented is eased. The purposeless life now has purpose. A discontented soul now has rest. Someone who's in turmoil at peace. I can hear her saying, you didn't have to do this for me. You didn't have to do this for me. And as a thank you, she's raised up and she wants to bless And this is a true sign of being touched by God's grace. If you really want to know, am I saved? Don't be looking at your behavior so much as good or bad and all of that, but look at your heart to serve the Lord, to wait on him and to, to love his people and to put his interests First in your heart and life. Uh, you, you know, can you imagine her getting raised up? She's writhing in pain. She's got this some kind of disease that surely will kill her. She's delirious. She's quaking. She's suffering. 
She's in the fetal position on some bed there, and she gets springed up, you know, she gets healed by a touch from Jesus, and she feels it just go. And can you imagine her getting up, walking out of the house, say, excuse me, I need some time for myself right now. I've been through a lot, okay? <laughs> it's been really stressful. I've had this for like three weeks, and it's gone in a second, but I need some time, okay? And you'll find me along the beach there, there by the, by the lake of Galilee, taking some time for me. There are people like that. They get what they need from God and then they go do their own thing because you know what? That's God's job. God's job. It's his responsibility to give me what I need and take care of me and then once he does, then I'm good to live my life, my life. But those who are touched by God, those who God blesses, they rise to bless God. Well, one writer said, I think you know I'm Pastor Ross Reinman. <laughs> He said, the soul that God blesses rises to bless God. When one doesn't rise to bless God, one must wonder if God has blessed at all. How could you not want to give to God's work after what he's given to you? More than bucks. It's called blood. How could you not want to have your words be right in front of the God who was stripped and flogged for you? How could you not? You're not that old person. You're not going to hell. You're not going to answer for any of your crimes. How could we not want to in turn thank him by the way we live, the way we speak, the way we live for others? To put a smile on his face. Moving on. Now, I'll paraphrase. You've got it in front of you. You've already heard it once. Here comes the paraphrase. The sun goes down, the sun sets. The people brought those possessed by evil spirits, and he drives out the demons with just one word. Demons were exiting from many people, trying to out Jesus to the crowds, you are the son of God. And Jesus says to silence them because they know exactly who he was. And he healed everyone who was sick, taking the time to touch each one. Folks, there are a lot of people in that crowd, a lot of people, a lot of people. This all happened because God said it would through Isaiah, the prophet. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases a beautiful verse from Isaiah. Right now, that beautiful verse belongs to a paragraph that gets abused and twisted and misapplied and has caused a lot of harm to God's people. And so um, with God's help, we'll take a look at what it truly means that by his stripes we are healed. But first we look now from being delivered from and distressed by disease to being saved from our suffering, from Satan. I've told you many times the Hebrew word for Satan means adversary. God has an enemy. That's quite mysterious how it all goes, but we do have some clues that Lucifer was the head angel that was the evil one, 
And in his rebellion of wanting God's job and essentially fell in love with himself because he was, uh, it says, beautiful, he falls in love with himself and says that, you know what, the only thing missing from my job is that I want to be God. And so Isaiah chapter 14 quotes him as saying, I will raise my throne above the stars. I will make myself like the most high God. And now he goes from Lucifer, which means light bearer, to Satan, the enemy of God. And the reason he's our enemy is because we are the love and apple of God's eye made in his image, the object of his great love. And to mess with us is to hurt his enemy. And so apparently it says in the Bible that a third of the angels followed this nonsense into rebellion to with this um, now the devil uh, and he mimics God. And you see this in the end times. In the end times, in the great tribulation, when the church is out of harm's way, we get to see him in all of his glory. Well, the, those left behind will. And like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he, he's a counterfeit. He wants to be God, and he wants the worship that only God deserves. And so Satan becomes father, the Antichrist becomes son, and the false prophet becomes the spirit by which the signs and wonders are enabled. And so even there, he will have a mortal wound. The son will have a mortal wound to the head. And the father, Satan, will raise him from the dead. Sound familiar? So the possessing of a human being, ah, God possesses human beings and controls them to do his good will to bring them life. I will possess them, he says, through my spirits as an extension of him. Not to bring life and blessing and obedience and transformation for good, but to bring captivity and bondage and perversion and blasphemy and hurt and pain and suffering and all kinds of things I don't need to go into. That's why uh, Satan likes to possess a soul. And they were brought by people who loved them in all of their manifesting and all of their crazy lunatic ways. And by the way, Satan likes to possess as an angel of light as well in beautiful, stunning, attractive, worldly, rich you know, you just never know who you're dealing with. You know, we always picture the typical writhing on the ground with the foam and all of that stuff. But I would say today where you have demon possession is in the upper echelons with people who have 800 million followers who are, are tweeting out blasphemous things. How did they get such influence and power? They're so beautiful and attractive, almost like something supernatural is about them. Hmm, I wonder who could be at work there. And so I guess you guys know who that might be. And so, yeah, so here they come and they, they are cast before God's only begotten son who has the authority to deal with them. But they don't leave without a fight, as your text shows. Jesus has 
shared the secrets of the kingdom of God with his disciples, and he tells them that. To you guys, I'm telling you the secrets, which includes, by the way, I'm the Messiah. But he doesn't tell that to the world at large because Jesus is on a schedule. Daniel chapter 9 has Jesus to the day from 400 years prior to the day, if you count the, from the 400 years prior to the day, Jesus will be on that cross and not a day sooner. And so to stir up the crowds with the messianic claim, you are the son of God, before the appointed time is to get this, and the devil is good at this too, taking the truth and using it in a way to hinder the purposes of God. By telling the truth in the wrong way, at the wrong time, from the wrong source. And of course Jesus silenced them. A, because he's keeping the time schedule and doesn't want to stir up Jerusalem before he needs to. And B, he doesn't need a letter of recommendation from the devil. (laughs) He really doesn't. And does a good man, does a good man want Adolf Hitler to put in a good word for him? no matter how true it is, right? And so Jesus is in charge. So he just says, you know, leave. And on your way out, the Greek is be muzzled. Be muzzled. So leave and don't say a word. Bye-bye, you know. And so that's one of my favorite scenes for sure. And so, yes, indeed, Jesus has authority. And so he takes charge Uh, for sure. Now, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about demons and the devil. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. You just go on your uh, merry way and you have no idea that there's this whole spiritual realm that opposes you (laughs) and God. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You know people who are always talking about <laughs> more about what the devil's doing and his work than what God is, right? And so, you know what? I think God's people who have the Holy Spirit have discernment. We know the devil prowls about and we can sense when he's near. We really do. We can understand. And then in that moment, we scoot closer to the Lord because we know greater is is he who is in us than he that is in the world. But uh, you know what? Here's the deal. Your focus needs to be on Jesus. We don't talk to the devil. That was used to be the, the, a real fad among Christians. Talking to Satan, you know. Satan, I, you know, no. Don't ever start a sentence with Satan, I am anything, <laughs> you know. Leave it to God. What in our daily prayers we pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. We go to God. We don't start sticking our nose into uh, places we don't have the power uh, or authority to be. Amen. And so no worries about Christians who say, what if I ever got possessed? Because you don't know what goes on inside of this heart and mind, right? No, it's impossible, my friend. (laughs) It's impossible. Jesus is not going to be a roommate to the devil. It's not going to happen. So if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have no worries about that. You know, Jesus just says, eyes on me, eyes on me, serve me, resist him, 
move closer to me, you'll be fine. And so then he starts healing everybody. The verse tells you, he goes on, and it didn't matter what ailed them. Can you imagine? I mean, honestly, blind people, and sometimes they had birth defects with no eyes. Jesus recreated eyes. And again, Colossians 1.15 says, by Christ, everything was created. So if he created everything, why are we so like, oh, come on, an eye? Lepers had nubs for fingers. When he healed them, they had their fingers back. Oh, come on. Oh, come on to you. I mean, honestly, (laughs) he creates the whole world, and you think a few fingers are a problem for him? They're really not. How about this one? Malchus, a high priest's uh, servant, is in the garden. He's there to arrest Jesus with the rest of them. And Peter gets all excited. Oh, no, you don't. And pulls out his sword and slices the dude's ear off. The word in the Greek, I looked it up to make sure. It's to amputate. It's sliced off his head. And Jesus takes his hand, puts it on the side of his head, and there's an ear there. No. Shouldn't have somebody said, okay, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. I'm done. I'm in the wrong crowd here. I think I hear my wife calling. Yeah, Malchus still. It doesn't say anything. Maybe somebody did. But it seems like the party went on because the party had to go on because God was directing it. He was laying down his life. Nobody was taking his life from him. Amen. So yeah, when I know that Jesus can touch an ear and then in the second there's an ear there, I don't know, somebody was probably looking, he's feeling it and looking down at the ground at the other ear, you know, <laughs> just, just God, what he can do. He says, come on, and he'll say to you, the next time you're all freaked out about a bill or about somebody said something on Facebook, and your whole world is going to unravel? You didn't get invited somewhere? Maybe the God who could put an ear back on somebody's head can be helpful to you in your time of trouble. (laughs) Amen? Okay, can three people clap now? (laughs) Oh, you guys, you drive me to it. Now, here it is. Yes, I'm blaming you. Um... Here's the verse here. So, uh, yes, this is the context of the verse. If you could go back, Spencer, to uh, the one right before. So he quotes Isaiah 53, 4. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, all this means is to tell everybody, like he's going to do 60 times, that Jesus' behavior and the things he does and says has been predicted Uh, hundreds of years earlier, and he does that 60 times. This is just one of 60 times saying, hey, you see this? Well, the the Old Testament promise, Messiah, when he comes on the scene, how you'll recognize him is, is that he will heal people's diseases, every kind of them, right? So that's just really the point of the passage is to say, check, it's him because it was prophesied that he would carry our defilement and our diseases to the cross and die for our sin 
that causes such things as infirmities. Now let me show you the passage and where it gets kind of twisted and tweaked out of context and causes a lot of pain and suffering for people. So here it is in context. Right here is where he's quoting, right? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our, the word can mean diseases as well. And Matthew takes his liberty by the Holy Spirit and says diseases there. Yet we considered him stricken by God, punished by the Lord, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He wasn't in trouble for his own problems. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And then by his wounds we are healed is the verse that some twist into saying that because Jesus died on the cross, it included physical healing. And that whenever you're sick, uh, you need not receive that because it's already covered in what they say covered in the atonement because, and they'll quote this verse, which is right next to the other verse that Matthew quotes, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So by his wounds we are healed. Of what? What does that mean? What does that word mean? It means to be made whole, and it includes our sicknesses. However, what's the context here? How are we healed? It's much bigger than your natural sickness or disease. He's talking about spiritually healing you. How do I know that? Well, let's just read verse 5 from verse 4, all right? So we've got verse 5 here. By his wounds we're healed of what? Verse 6 tells you, we were like sheep going astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. And so we're healed of our sin and our estrangement and our separation. That brings about sicknesses and things. So Jesus dies for our sins, which includes our sicknesses. But The final reality is that we stand fully realized of this wholeness in heaven, right? So uh, this verse is used to say, if you're sick, just have faith, don't receive it. And um, because, and they'll take this by his wounds, by his stripes, we've been healed. Now this, my friends, is not affirmed anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. And you have Paul the Apostle who tells the Galatians, it was because I was sick in my body that I preached to you and I could say to these false teachers, did Paul lack faith when God used the sickness in his life like that? It just caused so many uh, people to be struggling. A woman with diabetes, first service, She comes forward crying, and she says, thank you, Pastor Ross. She said, do you know how many people have told me that I have diabetes because there's sin in my life, and on top of that, I could be better if only I had enough faith, because by his wounds, we are healed, twisted out of context. Now, God can heal us of anything, and we pray that he will, and we believe for healing. There's nothing wrong with that. But to demand and command, let me tell you another example of this extremeness. 
We're in India where a bunch of this nonsense, I'm sorry, is being preached and taught. And so one of us said, I'm not feeling well. I think I have a little bit of the flu. And they said, oh, don't say it. Don't confess it. We reject that because, you know, by his stripes you are healed. And so, and then he goes into praying, well-intentioned, well-intentioned, a saved person who is not being condemned now. He's being corrected because he said, Lord, we cast out the spirit of influenza. We know that sickness has no right here because by your stripes we've been healed. I would say that most everybody in this room here, 400 of you, how many there are, have dealt with this in your past somewhere along the line where it's all put on you and your faith because the pressure there is, is that God really wants you perfectly healthy all the time, which leads to even further abuse with all kinds of situations. Not only does he want you healthy, he wants you wealthy too. And so this is just the beginning of creating, listen to me, of creating a gospel for our convenience. I want to say, look, we have a pretty good deal with the gospel as it is. I think it's really super the way it is that God heals us completely of what's most important of eternal things. I I mean, yeah. Um, I can tell you one more story (laughs) there as well. Just people who have been under such pressure and uh, when I announced to the church 18 years ago that I was dealing with Hodgkin's lymphoma, Somebody asked me if I had bitterness in my heart and where's my faith, right? Yes, I do have bitterness right now because you caused it. (laughs) Oh, to put that on somebody's shoulders when they're already suffering, I'm just going to say this. Those faith teachers, they're going to inevitably get sick and die of something. And then what are you going to do? I don't receive it. I don't receive it. I don't receive it. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm out of control, but at least I know it. All right. <laughs> All right. So I think you get it. You know, I do want to say before somebody misunderstands me, does God have the power to heal us? He, yes. Can we pray for that? Every time I've got the sniffles, I'm like, God, heal me, right? Yes, it's good. Yes, he can. Yes, we believe him. But it's not about the miracles. It's about this. Spencer, last slide. So the crowd starts to think miracles, miracles, miracles. Don't leave. We need more miracles. And Jesus, in the morning, he goes to a solitary place. Mark says to pray. The people were looking for him, and they came to him where he was, and they tried to keep him from leaving. What? The miracle worker. You know, with the magic wand. It just says, you know, gives us what we need and want. But he says, no, no. Oh, no. I'm, uh, I'm not staying here for the doing the miracles, miracles, miracles. I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns. Because that is why I came. Miracles, signs, and wonders will follow, can follow as he wills according to his purpose. But the cart before the horse will get you nowhere fast. 
And that's exactly what people do. They lead with this whole school of ministry and prophetic healing that are teaching. I had a guy who went to that school and came into my office and said, Pastor Ross, do you see the gold dust on my hands? And I said, bro, I don't see it. And he said, are you calling me a liar? I said, no, I just think you need glasses better or something. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't see it. He says, well, God has given me. I went to that school and God's got this sparkly dust on me. And so God will tell me, like I was at Cottingtown Mall and I went up to somebody and I said, hey, God has told me you've got a bad back. And maybe I think it's a kidney problem. Right, So I laid hands on him, and I prayed for his kidneys. I said, bro, 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 it's not about the kidneys. It's about his heart. It's about eternal life. Jesus said, greater things will you do when I go to the Father and send the Holy Spirit. So what can be greater than raising dead people and cleansing lepers and opening the eyes of the blind? I've said this before speaking words of life and having them believe and come into an eternal relationship with God. That's eternal. Uh, Every single time you share the gospel, you are doing something greater than Jesus ever did in the miracle sense. Lazarus, oh, you do something way better than that. Lazarus has to come forth from the dead and then he's got to get a lump and a bump and go back to the doctor and say, doc, I don't know what's up. I've been uh, losing weight. I got night sweats, you know, and he says, well, you got three months to live. Again, I got to do this again. Yeah, but the ones who come to life through the gospel will never die and never perish. The eyes that we open by preaching the gospel will never be closed in death. The ears that are unstopped to hear the voice of God will hear the voice of God forever. And that's why Jesus says, listen, stop with the miracles, 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 kidneys. So he gets new kidneys and then perishes. Cart before the horse, people. Ah, If you want to say, hey, sir, The Lord is putting you on my heart to tell you the good news about Christ. Are you open to hearing the gospel? Oh, that's good. And then as you're talking and that subject is over, then you want to talk about kidneys? Fine. But don't put the cart before the horse. And it's so easy to do. And there's a whole world out there of Christians doing that very thing. Well, I look at this text right here and I just say, and a lot of pastors get this question, what's your vision? And, you know, what are you all about, man, in ministry? And what are your priorities? My priority is what Jesus' priority was, to preach the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that we are to be transformed, to walk with God, to do good works, to shine our light, to be transformed, to be holy, to become holy. And instead of thinking about kidneys, we could be thinking about stopping pornography in our lives and treating our husbands and wives better. And, and spending time on our knees before God instead of chasing these crazy things and gold fillings in our mouths. I'm sure you haven't even heard of that. Like God would want to put a gold filling in your mouth. Come on. Oh, yeah, and it's in the shape of a cross. And I told one guy, he doesn't come here anymore. I said, open your mouth. I'd like to see it. So he did. He said, yeah, God gave it to me supernaturally. And I said, 
One of my best friends is a dentist. I, he would love to see the kind of work Jesus does in a mouth. And so he said, are you calling me a liar? And I said, no, you know what? I think that you heard all of this stuff. You forgot you had the crown. And then you heard it all. You got all excited. You opened your mouth. You totally forgot about it and said, bing. Boy, God gave me a crown tooth of gold. Why? 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 All of these things are wise. And you know what? You will never sound. You will never sound spiritual by coming against this kind of bad theology. You will always look like you are inferior and less mature and less devoted. And that's the cost. And that's okay. Because I want to be pleasing to God with my doctrine so that I can be effective for God with my life. Amen? Let's pray together. Now, Father, as the worship team comes and we just want to settle down and, and make sense of all of these spirited remarks, God, we don't, need, we don't mean any harm to anybody. We just are charged in your word to guard our doctrine closely, to watch our lives as well that we might save those who he are hearing us, as your word says. So we want to be true to that, Lord, and walk that line without disrespecting people, but respecting and revering your word and truth. And so we cling to that, which is good this morning. Help us to have discernment and wisdom and to learn from this beautiful passage, God. That those you bless rise up to be a blessing for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.